Well, good morning. We are um, going to be in Matthew chapter 6 this morning. And as you're turning there, let me just mention a few items of things that are going on in our church. Uh, you've probably noticed that we've brought food in the back of the worship center. We're kind of transition, transforming the back of our worship center into a fellowship hall. And we're doing that on purpose so that you can meet in the middle between services and you can meet with each other after uh, second hour. And it's our opportunity just to be a family and to get to know each other. We've had some people that have come that have been new to our church and perhaps you've been here for a while and still don't feel as connected as you'd like to be. And this is a way for us to try to facilitate fellowship. Even if you stay for five minutes, ten minutes, eat a little bit. There's something about food and talking to other people that just happens. And it was happening that way since the dawn of the New Testament and the New Covenant Church in the book of Acts. So we've been eating and fellowshipping that way for a long time. Let's keep it up. And if you want to be involved in helping that ministry uh, go and and if you want to enhance it in any way, we have some people who are who are leading out and making it happen. Mike Weber is our pastor to assimilation and visitation. And you can contact Mike if you want to be involved in um, donating some food, some fruits, some pastries. And also uh, Susan Galvin has stepped up and she is helping out also as a point person. You could contact her directly if you want to be involved or the church office and just ask for Mike or his voicemail and you can sign up in that way to serve. But take advantage of this opportunity for us to fellowship because we're really trying to get you connected um, to each other. Um, Let's see. Also, one other thing. And again, I'm not trying to be self-promoting at all. I was asked to just wave my book around again. It's called Illuminated Preaching. Uh, It's not just for preachers, though. Anybody who teaches the Bible or wants to be a better listener as you hear the word of God, this book could help you out. I basically wrote it as a study on the Holy Spirit and the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. And so if you want to learn about what the Spirit of God's doing in my heart and should be doing in your heart during preaching or any time you're in contact with the Word of God, I want you to, you know, check this book out. We we have it for you available at a bulk rate, a reduced rate over there on the table. And I believe that's it. Let's turn in our Bibles now to Matthew chapter 6. One more thing, though. One more thing. I forgot this. I want us to stand now and turn around and greet each other in the Lord and find somebody you've never met before, perhaps, and tell them your name. Let's uh, kind of wind up our brief time and retake your seats. Let's pray one more time as we open up our Bibles. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that it is powerful and that it is active and that your spirit is alive within us. So God, teach us now. From the teachings of Christ, I pray that we would be like those who gathered around him, seated on the mountainside to hear the Sermon on the Mount. I pray that we would listen to our teacher, the blessed Holy Spirit and the Son of God and our Heavenly Father. We pray that 
the Trinity would be teaching us and that we would be illumined by your spirit to hear the truth and to apply it and to obey it this week, God. Not out of duty, not out of some kind of legalism, but obedience that comes from the fact that you've softened our hearts to want to obey. Your commandments are not burdens. They are blessings to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I've heard a story that perhaps you've heard before of an old aesthetic Eastern sort of holy man who was on a prominent street corner as a beggar and he covered himself in ashes as a symbol of his own personal humility and piety. And he was so prominently positioned and well-known to the public that tourists would come just to walk by him and see him and have their picture made with him. And right before they would have a picture made, they'd ask permission, and the mystic would rearrange his ashes so that he would have the best image of destitution as the picture would be taken. Now, I know that that's kind of a humorous story. I'm not sure if it's true or not. But before we get too critical on this Eastern mystic, holy man, we need to examine our own hearts and see if Perhaps our religious duties or our religious prayers aren't another form of us just rearranging our ashes from time to time. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is talking about our orthopraxy. Now you say, what is orthopraxy? That is simply our practice of religion. He's talking about our giving and our praying and even fasting. And those three religious practices are cross-religion, you know, things that people do. And people practice praying and giving in all different kinds of religions and fasting. They're just known things that people do. And Jesus is targeting these things to say, look, I'm not concerned about your practice as much as I'm concerned about the purity of your heart when you practice religion. He's going after your heart motive in verses 1 through 18. And we're only going to cover verses 1 through 6 this morning. But we are going to, over the next couple weeks, look at giving, praying, and fasting. And we're going to talk about how our motive needs to be pure when we do these things. Chapter 5, what we just studied is where Jesus was talking about the law. That is our orthodoxy. That's the law and how we need to interpret it the right way and not obey it out of legalistic uh, duty, but out of a pure transformed heart, out of a soft heart. Not to be Pharisees, but to be genuine believers. That's chapter five. And then now in chapter six, Jesus is saying, now let's talk about how you live this out in your religion. Now, for me to use the word religion, that might be for some fingernails to a blackboard already. You might be saying, look, I've heard the phrase, and I like the phrase, it's not a religion, it's a relationship, right? You've heard that before. But religion in and of itself is not a bad word. James uses it in James chapter 2, verse 27. He says that pure and undefiled religion is visiting what? Orphans and widows. It's having a faith that works. It's, it's how we live out our Christian experience before the world. But that's an undefiled religion, and that presupposes that your religion could be defiled. You could have a messed up religion. What messes up our religion? One word. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. 
It's being duplicitous. It's saying one thing and doing another. It's not being genuine at a heart level. Our hypocrisy is what it, it, it messes up. It sullies our religion. It, it, it dirties it. Mark chapter 7 verse 6 is where Jesus, quoting Isaiah, said, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, meaning the Pharisees, It says, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. It's where you're singing or saying things about God or singing to God, but your heart's really not in it. That's a hypocritical religion, and that's what Jesus is dealing with here. He's dealing with true orthopraxy, an undefiled orthopraxy. And if you're taking notes, we're looking at three categories, giving praying, and fasting. This morning we're going to be looking at giving, and then we're going to touch upon the topic of praying. Giving, verses 1 through 4. Follow as I read. This is what Jesus said. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you." You know, first of all, we need to, in our giving, fight against public approval. Fight against public approval. We are to be different than the hypocrite. And not give for our own glory. Jesus is giving a warning. He says, beware of this. This is something that could be a temptation in your life. And he's centering in on your motive. He's saying, why do you give? Do you give for public approval or not? And that's really the question of all of these six verses. Who do you want to be seen by when you live out your religion? Are you living out your faith to be seen by God secretly, or are you living to be seen by other people? The word see or seeing is found four times in verses 1 through 6. You look at verse 1, you see the hypocrites were, the Pharisees were practicing righteousness to be seen by others. And then that's contrasted in verse 4 by how we need to be giving so that we're just seen in secret by our Father. This same contrast is found in verses 5 and 6. The hypocrite, he stands to pray to be seen by others. And then in verse 6, we need to be praying to be seen by our Father in secret. So who's your audience? That's the question. Who's your audience? Who do you want your audience to be as you live out your Christian life? Our audience should be the Lord. That's what should be happening in our hearts. And if it's not that way, then look at verse 1 again. If we're giving in a way that we want to be seen by other people, our reward is paid in full. We have no reward from our Heavenly Father. And verse 2 says we've already received our reward. In other words, we're left empty. And also, God, He just has no time for the faker. He really doesn't. He's calling people who, who... 
lay out the righteousness in front of other people. He's calling those people hypocrites. Verse 2. The word hypocrite comes from the classical Greek arts where there was this man who was known as Hippocrates. And he was known to be the first actor. An actor who would wear a mask as he acted, as he portrayed himself as someone else. That's where we get the word hypocrite. That's what these people are. They're just actors. It's the difference between Cain and Abel. You have Abel who's giving a sacrifice that's received. No matter what it was, it was an acceptable sacrifice. And then you have Cain who gave his sacrifice as an actor. He gave his offering as an actor, as a charade. It's a person who's make-believing in their religion. You know, in the Jewish community, some, there, there would be a need that would arise, right? And, and suddenly, trumpets would be blown, and officials would walk down the street, and they would announce this need. And a person who is an actor would look at that need as an opportunity for glory. And they might be in their wood shop, and they shut their shop up, and they close it down, and they get a pot full of money, and they run out into the street because the crowd is forming to hear about the need. And they say, ha-ha, I can meet this need. Right? And they look at this opportunity as a way to promote their own glory. The Pharisee would show up in a religious um, sort of setting at the synagogue or on the street corner, and they would show up with their gift right as the trumpets would be blown. And, you know, there's some real humor in verse 2. You just think about it. It's so gaudy, it's so arrogant to show up with your money bag when the trumpet is being blown. It almost sounds like, you know, the, the phrase, that person's blowing his own horn or he's tooting his own horn. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, wake up. Could you imagine this type of scene where somebody's doing something like that? They're giving out of a hypocritical heart to be praised by others. That's what he's talking about. Jesus is saying that there's no spiritual worth in this whatsoever. There's no value. And as you're sitting there, I would imagine that you would respond to this text like I would. You say, that's gross. That's, that's something I would never want to be doing, but it's something probably I've done before. Someone who is not a believer or not spiritually minded just would blow this off and say, look, I, you know, how, how can I help? You know, who knows or who doesn't know what I give? But you probably know in your own life and in your own heart that there are times where you can give to someone or do something for someone. And then you're, you're met with a choice where you're sitting around the dinner table or, or you're with a group of people and you can either talk about it and go public with it or not, right? And, and there probably have been times where you've gone public with information about something you've done and you go... Oh, you know, I, I'm probably violating this, you know. And we should be that way. We should guard our service. And there are some normal, natural ways that people will find out about what we do. And sometimes the Lord designs it that way, where people find out that you've done something for someone else or you've given a gift and you're thanked for that. But there is that sort of opportunity either to go public with what you've done or not. And the Lord is saying, don't do it. Keep it secret. Keep it secret. Go in secret. You have to fight not only against public approval, though. Now in verses 3 and 4, Jesus 
targets what we really struggle with, and that is private approval. This is where we approve ourselves in our own hearts. Look at the way Jesus puts it. He says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. First of all, note in verse 3, Jesus is saying when you give, he's not letting you use uh, the, the warning here as an excuse not to give. He's not saying, oh, you know, we need to be warned not to be hypocrites, so we need to second guess ourselves so much that, oh, I won't give. You know, there's a lot of people, right, that do that. They say, you know, my heart's just not in it. It's not right. I know I could give, but I'm not ready to, so I'm just not going to give, right? You know, that's, that's, just, that's just not biblical. What we should do is we should repent of that hard attitude and then give, right? Or, oh, I can't sign up to serve in that way or participate in this or that. I, I shouldn't be discipling that person because my heart's not right. Well, Repent of your sins. You know, if you need to get some counseling, get some counseling. And then jump into the battle. Serve. Repent and serve. Repent and give. And give and serve as an act of your repentance. It'll lock it in and say, look, I'm going to go for it. Don't let, you know, this sort of cop-out excuse uh, form in your heart where you say, I don't want to be a hypocrite. You know, just repent of hypocrisy and move into service. But... Really what Jesus is pointing at here is our own self and private approval. This is where we struggle. He he personifies this with a left and a right hand, and he's talking about what's going on in our hearts. We're very complex people. God has made us in his own image, and we have minds that can operate on several different levels at the same time. You say, no, I can't do that. Well, if you can drive... And, you know, put a car in gear and back up and think about your day at the same time. You're operating on two different levels. You're thinking about driving and you're also thinking about other things. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great preacher from the UK, he said that he had seven trains of thought going on at the same time when he would preach. He's kind of a brilliant guy. I I typically operate in two trains of thought, right? (laughs) And chewing gum and walking at the same time. Anyway, but, but... He's talking here about your right and left hand. And that's being personally aware of yourself. It's the idea that when your right hand, your stronger hand, gives, you don't need to tell your left hand that you did anything at all. You should practice some, some, the opportunity of being oblivious to yourself as you serve. Being oblivious. It's giving and then moving on. Instead of giving and going, hey, you know what? I'm a pretty good guy. I just get, I gave this much money and I'm not going to tell anybody about it. I might tell my spouse what I did or, or, or tell my kids and family devotions what we did, you know. Or, or I might tell, you know, this smaller group. But whether I do or not, I'm going to tell myself, look what I did. Or, you know, perhaps you're tempted to say, I gave this much and that's probably a lot more than that other person gave. That's... The right hand talking to the left hand or the left hand talking to the right hand. It's where we talk to ourselves and we shouldn't be doing that. You know, in Jonah, and you know the story of Jonah where Jonah in Jonah chapter 4 is angry and bitter that God did not choose the nuclear option and bomb Nineveh. And he's sitting there bitter and God says, listen, I'm having pity on Nineveh, this great city, verse 11. 
in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. Now, what God is talking about there is how sinful Nineveh was, that they were just completely out of control and they were personally oblivious to how out of control they were. They weren't talking to themselves. They were completely unaware of what was going on in their hearts. Now, that's a condemnation and a rebuke. But if you turn it around and understand the analogy like Jesus is saying, we should be spiritually oblivious and unaware to anything good that we would ever do. I mean, Jesus is really, really tightening the screws here. He's, he's getting down to the nitty gritty of our hearts. Where you live, you do something for someone and you got to let it go. And when you let it go, it turns into worship to God. If you hold on to it and nurse it and say, oh, you know, I'm going to break my arm. I'm patting myself somewhere. If you do that, it's going to just make you empty as a Christian. But if you do something and let it go, God takes it. It's acceptable. He breathes it in as an acceptable sacrifice and enjoys it and blesses you back in secret. That's what he's talking about. This is true and undefiled religion where we do not seek to applaud ourselves, to give ourselves a hand clap. And we don't seek public applause either. It's kept secret. It's where you turn into a holy sacrifice, a living sacrifice, Romans 12, 1 and 2, that's acceptable to God. All right, that's, that's giving. Now let's look at the second area of religious practice, and that is praying. Verses 5 through 6. Follow as I read. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now we're just going to begin the theme of prayer this morning. Next week we'll take some more verses on and go right into the Lord's Prayer. But this begins with our heart motive again in praying. Look at verse 5. Verse 5. The assumption is that we will pray. And when you pray, again, we were made and designed to worship. And Jesus is teaching these disciples that you're going to pray. It's going to happen. This is what you will do. But when you do it, you dare not be like the hypocrites. Don't be an actor when you pray. Don't put a mask on when you pray. You might say, well, look, I don't really pray publicly too often like the Pharisees. I don't stand in a synagogue or stand at church and pray. Nobody really calls on me to pray, but it does happen, doesn't it? There are times when you pray for the meal, you pray before the Bible study, you're praying in front of people. And as you pray, the question is, are you more concerned with how you're coming off or coming across than being concerned with the Lord and thinking about him, his holy character. That should be your focus when you pray. Not to be an actor, not to be a showman or a woman who's, who's showing off, giving a little bit of make-believe when you pray. Because God has no time for the faker. He doesn't. Look, it says, 
When you pray in these public ways, don't be a hypocrite that you would be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. In other words, when you pray to show off and be seen by others, there is no communion and fellowship between you and God. Your reward is contained here on earth. It really is a matter of just man's applause and that's it. Nothing is happening when you pray that way. That's what he's saying. It's a rebuke, and it's what people live for. People live for personal applause that are not spiritually minded because they can't go anywhere else. You don't have your father who's in secret, and so all you can live for is for man's approval. Well, you fight against public approval, and then secondly, you fight for secrecy, and that's found in verse 6. Look at verse 6. But when you pray, there it is again, the assumption that you'll pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus is not condemning a method for praying, but he's targeting in on the motive for praying. There's nothing wrong with standing and praying. There's nothing wrong with praying on a street corner. There's nothing wrong with praying publicly. You know, the early church prayed publicly. There were public prayers given. There are public prayers that Paul wrote, like in the book of Ephesians. There are a couple prayers that are recorded there. They're public prayers. You have Jesus' prayers that are recorded because he prayed publicly. He prayed standing. Prophets prayed publicly and they prayed standing. That's not the issue at all. It's whether or not you have a private relationship that the public prayer is overflowing out of. Because the private relationship should be primary. It's so easy to get caught up in the busyness of our Christian lives and designate our religious practice to only be firing when we're in public. But really, to be like Jesus, you have to pray more privately than you do publicly. Do you get that? Your prayer life, your praying without ceasing life, should be happening so much more than anything you do publicly. And when it's that way, your public ministry will be powerful and it won't be about you and you might not even know that it's powerful, but it will be the overflow of what's happening in your heart in the first place. That's what Jesus is saying. And he's saying, when you pray, pray to your father in private, in solitude. Now, some people will romanticize the idea of going to a particular room and shutting a particular door for your prayer time, your prayer closet, right? I mean, I read one commentator that said, you know, this is the designated room in this culture and in this time where people would store their treasures in the closet. And so when you go into your closet, it's as if you're opening all your prayer treasures before God. You know, I don't have a room in my house right now that I can designate as a prayer closet. I mean, I've got kids hanging all over the place in my room, my house and rooms. I don't have a place for a prayer closet. My prayer closet is my backyard, right? When, when I can walk out in it right now and just, just rush away from everybody else, right? Or my backyard is my neighborhood. Or, I'm sorry, my prayer room is my neighborhood where I can walk around. Or my car, you know, where I can just get away. And you have to fight 
to get away, right? You have to fight for intimacy with the Lord and fight for communion with him. I woke up the other morning and I was meditating on this text and thinking about prayer and thinking about my own life. And I was thinking, I have to fight to get with God. I do. I'm awake and I wake up and I'm looking around and kids are still asleep and I grab my cup of coffee, right? You got to make that first. And, you know, you get the juices flowing. Then I'm thinking, okay, now I have a choice. I can go to the internet. I can go to a book. I can go to the newspaper or I can go to meet with God. All right. We're all posed with those kinds of choices. And so what I did is I, I rushed out into the backyard and just began to enjoy the sights and sounds of nature and rejoice before God and talk to him and commune with him. Because Jesus is talking about the fact that to not be a hypocrite, to not be an actor, you've got to have a personal walk, a personal relationship, an interactive relationship with the Lord. You've got to be practicing intimacy with him. My favorite way to pray is walking and praying. I love to do it. I always think, you know, if I'm really into it and somebody's watering their grass, they're going to think a crazy man walked by. But, you know, it's worth it. It's, it's your opportunity because you're talking, right, and you're not talking to somebody else. I guess they could think I'm on the phone, right, with an earpiece. But it's important to be able to get away with God where you can pour your heart out before him, where he knows what you're going to ask before you say it. But there's, there's living dynamic interaction as you pray before the Lord, as you tell God how great he is and how much he's blessed you, as you lay your needs before his feet so that he can care for you. I remember praying with a friend of mine who was really struggling and he was struggling with some anger and we were sitting in his car and I just said, hey, can I pray for you? And I mean, I just started praying for him as if I was conversing with God like I do privately and just talking to God and talking on his behalf, and doing that out loud. And I remember after we prayed, he just looked at me and said, can you do that with me from time to time? Because I, I, I need to do that with you. And what he, was, what he was responding to is just the fact that it wasn't a formal prayer. It was a living, conversational prayer. And that's what we have to have, to not be this kind of person, this hypocrite. We don't want that. One preacher was, uh, that I read this week was a little bit too harsh. He made his point, but I thought it was a bit strong. He was saying that he believes that one out of a hundred in church actually is praying to God when they pray. He said that most people are praying to other men or praying to themselves. Now, there's a modicum of truth in that. There's a great temptation to be thinking about others or thinking about yourself when you pray, especially when you pray publicly. But you know what? I also believe that there's a whole lot of grace that God gives when we try to pray, out loud or privately, a whole lot. And that God, because he loves you and designed you to pray to him, is giving all kinds of grace and help when you pray. Where do I get this from? Romans 8, 26. The spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You know what's going on when you pray? You're pouring your heart out to God as weak, enfeebled people, sinners, trying to commune with the Lord, and the Holy Spirit acts as a bridge. 
And he takes what you say and he scoops it up and he reinterprets it to coalesce and work in concert with God's perfect will. Actually, this verse, Romans 8.26, it's two verses from Romans 8.28. For God is causing all things to work together for the good, for those that are called by his name and called according to his, those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So in other words, this is what's happening. When you pray, you've got the bottom gear and that's your words that are going up to God. And the spirit of God comes along and the will of God comes along and hot sinks in gear with your prayers where your prayers are actually being reinterpreted to work in concert with how God's will is playing out in the first place. It's a beautiful thing. Our weak effort is empowered by God to work perfectly and mesh in terms of God's will, where he's working all things together for the good, for you who love God and are called according to his purpose. One person put it this way. He said, you know, a lot of times we are like radios that are operating in the AM. You know, you've got the radio frequencies that are all around us at all times, and we're just tuned into the AM. We're kind of half limping along in our flesh, and we're trying to pray, and we're not yielding ourselves to the power of the Spirit. But what we need to do is just make a choice and say, Lord, I don't want to pray in my flesh. I want to just assume that you want to reinterpret my prayers according to your will. I want to assume that it's going to be empowered by the Spirit. And so we begin to yield ourselves to the Spirit, and it's as if we move from AM to FM. All right, here's a modern analogy, right? It's, it's, you're trying to get online at the coffee shop, right? And all of a sudden, Wi-Fi kicks in, okay? The Spirit of God, He is the invisible paraclete, the one who is coming alongside you to help you as you pray. We just have to yield ourselves to Him as we fight for secrecy, as we fight to be with Him. To pray like Jesus, we have to pray a lot more privately than we do publicly. Jesus prayed all night in prayer, right? Wrestling getting alone with God. He he knew he needed his heavenly father to minister. And then he would come along and the 5,000 would need to be fed and he would break the loaves and offer the loaves and the fish up to his heavenly father in a public prayer of gratitude. You might say, look, I can't do this. I still can't live this life of prayer. I can't give an hour or two a day in prayer. Even if I'm just trying to threaded in and through my day. It's hard for me to focus on the Lord. I've got a lot of demands around me. What made me think of the woman who lived in the 1600s, Susanna Wesley. You may not have heard of her. Susanna Wesley was born in a home of 25 children. So she had 24 siblings and she was the um, daughter of a pastor and pastor's wife in London, England. And she's known to be the mother of of Methodism or the Methodist church and denomination because she also, when she grew up, had a large family. She had 19 kids, so she didn't quite make her mother's um, nest, but she had 19 of them. But two of the kids were John and Charles Wesley. And John Wesley, he preached in open air preaching on both sides of the pond in England and also throughout our land and Charles Wesley has had a great impact as a writer and hymn writer and preacher and pastor. And they really were the, the, 
the spark to that denomination of Methodism. But Susanna Wesley was a prayer warrior. And she might be the lesser known one, but she prayed for her kids. And she discipled her kids. And prayer is what kept her heart going as she was a pastor's wife herself. She had 19 kids. It reminded me of the Duggar family. You watch that on reality TV? Yeah, nobody first hour got it either. Anyway, just kids everywhere, right? But she had this massive family. How did she pray? You know how she prayed? In the midst of the chaos, she would take her apron and she would whip it over her head and pray. And when she did that, the kids knew that she was in her secret place. And they left her alone. And I think that's how it has to be with us. We have busy lives, but that is no excuse. We have technology all over the place. You know, you've heard this one. Well, now, you know, our kids are so conditioned, you know, by the media, they can't read and concentrate and pray anymore. You know, we just have to give over. It's hogwash, right? God made you in the image of God. We need to read the word of God and we need to pray and concentrate and fight harder to concentrate because of the media around us. We need to pray with our kids. We need to model going away and being with the Lord. You say, you know, well, you need to spend time with your kids. Well, go away from your kids and tell them, I'm going away to pray for a half an hour. That will have more impact on them than if you would have spent the half an hour playing video games with them, right? Go away and pray. Pray with them. But we need to pray in secret because God is there. Look at verse 6. God is there. Shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Where do you find God? You find him in intimacy, in privacy, alone with him. That's what we have to do. And we find him, and then look what he does. He rewards us in secret. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. You know, you want to be someone who's known like David, the psalmist, the king, the one who was known as a man after God's own heart, right? That's who we want That's how we want God to think about us. Someone who sees in our hearts, into our hearts, and and sees a person who wants him back. I was thinking about the difference between David and Saul. Two kings, the first king and the second king. Saul was chosen because of outward appearance and because he was a strong, strapping, handsome man. 1 Samuel 9, 2, it talks about how he was handsome and from his shoulders upward, he was taller than all the other people. Because he was tall, dark, and handsome, he was selected to be king. They didn't have a king before Saul. uh, That office wasn't established or even made made, made made or thought of in Israel before Saul. You had Samuel. You had prophets that preceded Samuel. And they said, Samuel, you're great, but give us a king. We must have a king. So they chose Saul. And Saul, who became a man puffed up in pride... Before war offers to sacrifice, instead of waiting for Samuel to do it, he gets in trouble for that, but they win the war anyway, but then won't kill King Agag in 1 Samuel 15. And ultimately, Samuel comes to confront Saul about that and says, you know what, your kingdom has been ripped away from you. And Saul seizes Samuel's skirt, the skirt of his robe, and it tore And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who's better than you. So Samuel, if you picked up in the story in chapter 16, he's grieving and kind of crying and weeping over the fact that 
that Saul didn't work out. And the Lord says, how long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. This is David's dad. And he says, for I have, here's the key word. This is why I went here. I have provided for myself a king among his sons. The word provided, the Hebrew word ra'ah means to see. And what God was saying there is, I have seen him in Jesse's family of sons. I've seen him. I've provided. I'm, I'm looking and I'm telling you, Samuel, go to that family because I've seen the one who has a heart for me. And so, this is some humor to the story here. Samuel shows up, he sets up this sacrifice and sets up this opportunity to have the different sons parade in front of him. And in 1 Samuel 16, 6, it says, when they came, the sons, he looked on the first one. He looked on Eliab and thought, this is God's humor here, surely the Lord's anointed is before me, right? You have Samuel who's duped just like Israel was picking Saul. Surely this one is the guy. He's, he's the strong, strapping leader. I must have him. Verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, there's the word, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Why would you have a right heart in your worship? You know why? Because God has softened your heart just like he did David's. David was not superhuman. He wasn't anything extra special. He was the shepherd boy. He was the one that was the least likely candidate to be king, to be selected. And they brought him in and said, oh yeah, that that guy, you know, sort of the, the scrub, he's out there with the sheep. Yeah, we'll go call him in. But he was the one who had the heart for the Lord. And that's who we are. We are the not many mighty and not many noble. We are the fishermen that drop our nets and follow Jesus because God's transformed our hearts. We have the Holy Spirit of God who softens our hearts and interprets our prayers according to God's will. So we can pray. So we can pray in a non-flashy, non-self-congratulating way. Not seeking the applause of men in a public arena through our giving or praying but totally praying and giving in secrecy and in humility. That's what, that's what God has done for you. And this is how we must operate. Not in the AM, but in the FM. Let's look at a few points of application. Here's some practical temptations in orthopraxy, in religious duties. Number one, public worship. When we're giving, here's a question. Are you concerned about what people are thinking about you if you don't put something in the offering bag when it passes by? Now, whether you've given it another time or in the the box in the back or you're going to give in some other way, are you concerned about what people think? That's the question. Because when we're concerned about what people think, we really aren't following in line with what Jesus wants. We're concerned with public approval instead of our private relationship with the Lord. It can be very freeing for us to understand that we don't need to be concerned at all with what people think. We don't need to have an edge about them and say, well, I don't care what somebody thinks. But we need to be free to say, you know what, I am a giver. And that's kind of between me and the Lord as I'm giving to him as worship. Secondly, in our singing, 
When someone is more expressive than you are in worship, someone's next to you or whatever, and they're really going for it, and you aren't going for it externally, are you concerned about what they're thinking about you? We shouldn't be. Wait, we shouldn't be concerned if we're more expressive and, and we think, man, what, what are people thinking about me? Do they think I'm putting on or not? We, we, shouldn't, we, we should just be lost before the Lord in love and wonder and praise to him, not concerned with what people think about us. Not worried about public approval or public disapproval, but fighting for private intimacy with our God. Thirdly, when talking, are you tempted to try to sound more with it spiritually, even when you're not at that time? Maybe you haven't been in the Word in a while or been in prayer or you haven't read the latest, hottest Christian sanctification book. And then someone brings it up and says, hey, have you read this book and this guy and you're in a group and, and this person's going, yeah, I've read that. And you go, hmm, hmm, hmm. I mean, you don't want to do that. You don't want to, you don't want to fake it. Just say, no, I haven't been in that. I, I need to, to, to hear about that or, you know, let's talk about that. Or, or just confess and say, yeah, I really haven't been in the Word. I need some help. Can you pray for me? Far better to be that way than to put on airs spiritually. Being willing to be honest. All right, day-to-day living. Do we try to cover our inadequacies in our lives? I was thinking about, you know, parenting and how it can be this sort of trap where if your kids are messing up as children or teenagers, to try to cover that up. And, and you're, you're in public and you're thinking, you know, do I spank them? Do I take them in the other room and sort of, uh, you know, lay this principle out there that that's what I do, even though, you know, I'm in this public setting and it might be awkward to do that? Is that being more faithful? Or do I grace it? And am I concerned with, you know, how that's coming off? Do I look too passive or do I look very gracious in how I'm dealing with my rebellious child as he's, he or she's having a fit on the floor? I mean, that, that kind of stuff, we just need to let that go and do our best And just whether you take them and discipline them or not, don't be concerned with what other people think. We are unnecessarily, are we unnecessarily concerned over what people think about our life choices, entertainment choices? Maybe you're you're wanting to rent a movie and you're going, you know, I'm concerned with what someone might think. You know, for this choice or that choice, or if I go on vacation this long or go here or there. It's not about public approval. We have to let that go. It's a matter of the heart. And if you're concerned more with your heart before the Lord, you'll make better choices in general. Have you ever noticed that? If you you use other people as your spiritual gauge, you'll lose on either end. People will, will be too open for you and they'll say, oh, don't worry about any of that. Or they'll be too rigid and they'll say, oh, you shouldn't do that. And really, it should be a matter of the heart before the Lord with his word. And lastly, I just put on there a reminder, be willing to fight for secret time with your father. I would challenge you this week, fight for time with him. I was thinking about Jonathan Edwards. He used to have to get on his horse and travel from town to town, and he would pray as he rode. He would just get outside and pray as he went. And when he would have spiritual thoughts, he would write it down because he wouldn't want to lose his train of thought. He wouldn't want to lose this nugget that he had um, thought of that the Lord had given him. And he would tack it to his vestment and he would have this dark robe. And by the time he made it to another city, he was filled with white, you know, sticky notes, basically pinned on pieces of white paper all over his vestment. 
And he looked, you know, white by the time that he got to the town. And that's because he was meditating and he was fighting to meditate and fighting to use his time to think about the Lord. And if we do that, we'll enjoy God so much more and we'll enjoy life so much more with a clear conscience, with a free-flowing relationship. And when we pray and serve publicly, it will be out of the overflow of that. Let's pray as we approach the Lord's table. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you that we can now open ourselves up to communion. And I pray, God, that we would enjoy you through this meditation and enjoy the gospel. At this time, I would invite the men to come forward and ask the congregation if you would keep your heads bowed. Let's use this as a time of personal examination to think about where we've been with the Lord to confess our sins if we've been guilty of being concerned about our public worship, our giving, our praying. Take time to think about your own heart before God and confess your sins of unfaithfulness to him and also confess any sins where you have broken relationships. And my prayer is that the communion table would be a time of examination where we could have things be right and be a house of peace as a church.